Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our consideration this Sunday is our first reading, Job 38, verses 1 through 11, as printed in the bulletin and already read. Dear fellow new creations in Christ, have you experienced or at least witnessed people acting as though their confident ignorance is as right and valuable as an expert's actual knowledge? Perhaps it was something you came across online or in social media. Perhaps it was a new colleague or a boss who just assumed he or she knew better how to do your job without listening to what your years of experience have taught you. Or maybe it was a fellow student lecturing a professor on the right way to approach a topic that the professor's been researching, writing, and teaching on for his entire career. Such demonstrations or even celebrations of ignorance over expertise are embarrassing and frustrating enough in areas of practical knowledge, but they are downright deadly in spiritual matters, though still tragically common. And we're not just talking about how that guy on Twitter who has never read more than a chapter of the Bible considers himself as much an expert on Jesus and the true nature of Christianity as seminary-trained pastors and published theologians. No, the greatest offense and foolishness is when mere humans like you and me presume to speak for God and even to tell the Lord what he should do as though he needs our advice in order to not make a mess of things, or perhaps just to let him know that he doesn't really know what he's doing. Now, of course, that sounds foolish, perhaps even preposterous when it's stated so straightforwardly. Who would claim that doing that would be a good idea? But here's the thing. People who presume to advise or lecture God do not usually realize that that is what they are doing. And so they often keep on doing it, unaware of how much they are distancing themselves from the Lord and His truth, and for Christians, damaging their relationship of faith. And what is particularly tragic about this is how often it happens just when people need God and all of His wisdom, power, and love the most. The story of Job is often summed up as being about patience in suffering. But it is really more about this conflict between trusting God in humility and questioning or advising Him in pride. The story starts happily enough. In the land of Uz lived a man named Job, who was not only extremely rich in livestock, but had also been richly blessed with family, seven sons and three daughters. And these children actually got along and enjoyed each other's company. But the greatest thing about Job was his faith. His trust in the Lord was so strong that one day, When Satan came before the Lord, God said to him, There is no one on earth like my servant Job. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
But Satan took this as a challenge when God, who knows all things, stated it as a truth. The devil claimed that Job only feared the Lord because God had blessed him so abundantly. If God's generosity and protection were suddenly to be removed, Satan said, Job would just as surely curse God to his face. So the Lord gave Satan permission to strip all those things away from his servant. And he did. Job's flocks and herds were stolen or destroyed, and his servants with them. And worst of all, a windstorm knocked down the house where all his children were feasting, and they all died. But still, this did not dent Job's trust in God. He grieved, of course, tearing his robe, shaving his head, and falling to the ground. But he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, he did not sin or accuse God of doing anything wrong. But Satan was still not satisfied. He said to God, It's only because you didn't let me hurt Job himself that he hasn't yet cursed you. Let me add him again, and I'll prove it. And again, God gave permission. And this time, the devil struck Job with painful, oozing sores that covered him from head to toe. His misery was so great and profound that his own wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he responded, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The lack of spiritual support from his own spouse is perhaps as tragic as anything else in Job's story, but it was compounded by the arrival of friends who came to comfort him, but only made things worse. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar saw and wept over their friend's suffering. But on hearing Job curse the day of his birth and complain that he has no peace or rest, only pain and trouble, they each in turn found different ways to tell him that the only thing that made sense was this. God only punishes the guilty. God is obviously punishing you, Job, and therefore you, Job, must have done something awful. You are only getting what you deserve, and therefore, Job, you need to repent, and then maybe God will take this suffering away. And each time, Job responded and said, No, not true. I am not guilty of something awful. There is no unrepented sin to be punished for. And he expressed his desire, not only for God to end his suffering, but also for the opportunity to argue his case before the Lord, because he knew he did not deserve this. And still his friends argued for Job's guilt, and still Job defended his innocence. This fills 29 chapters of the book. But then another friend, Elihu, speaks. A friend who had held his tongue because the others were all his elders. And he basically said, you've all got it 
all wrong. Suffering is not always punishment. Sometimes God uses it for His good purposes. And we are wise to simply trust Him to do what is right. And with this argument, He showed greater wisdom than the others. But even the true things He said were not especially helpful to Job in his troubles. But while Elihu was speaking, something else was happening. A mighty storm with fearsome thunder and lightning was brewing, coming ever closer. And this was not just coincidence. This was not just any storm. Someone else besides Elihu had been waiting to speak. And that's where our reading today picks up. Then the Lord responded to Job out of a violent storm. He said, Who is this who spreads darkness over my plans with his ignorant words? Get ready for action like a man. Then I will ask you questions and you will inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand anything about it. Who determined its dimensions? I'm sure you know. Who stretched out the surveying line over it? What supports its foundation? Who set its cornerstone in place when the morning stars sang loud songs together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who locked up the sea behind doors when it burst out of the womb? When I clothed the sea with clouds? When I wrapped it with thick darkness as its swaddling cloths? When I broke its power with my decree? When I locked it up behind barred double doors? I said, you may come this far, but no farther. Here is the barrier for your proud waves. Those 11 verses are really just the start of God's answer to all of Job's challenges, self-justifications, and most of all, presumptions in expecting the Lord to, to bend to His will in giving explanations and making things right. In the process, of course, God also upends all the arguments of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar as well. And God's answer here is full of questions. Something like 77 of them in four chapters of the book. The Lord does not bend to anyone's demands for information or justification of His actions. He doesn't directly address the comments of any of the friends or even of Job. He just says what he has to say, what needs to be said. He accepts neither any of the arguments proffered on his behalf nor the role of the defendant who must give excuses for his decisions. And each of the questions God poses to Job leads to some inescapable conclusions. Because each of the who and what and when questions have only one answer from, from Job or from anyone, it was not I who did these things, knew such things, saw such things, caused such things. Only the Lord, only the Creator, only the Almighty could, would, did, and does them. And so the message comes through clearly. The Lord is not your equal, not even close. He cannot be addressed as though you are on the same level. He owes you nothing, not even answers. 
But everything he does, he does well. and He can therefore be trusted for everything. Job answers a first time, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Note the irony. The one who had demanded an audience with his Creator now shut his mouth. But Job still hadn't fully repented and still needed to understand that God's relationship with him was about grace and not about obedience. Gospel, not law. And so after two more chapters of questioning the Lord, questioning from the Lord, Job finally replies, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally got it. Through all of this, he never stopped being God's child or having faith. But now he understood what it was he had been assuming and presuming with all of his complaints and questions. He would no longer make demands or give advice to the Almighty. He would trust the Lord's expertise, His wisdom, mercy, and might. And the Lord demonstrated that wisdom, mercy, and might right away. Satan obviously had lost his challenge. Job never cursed God or lost his faith. And then the Lord, after chastising Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for not speaking of him what is right, the Lord made Job prosperous again, even more than before. He was given another seven sons and three daughters and given twice as many flocks and herds as he had before. And he lived a very long and full life, seeing grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now, we could end right there with the end of Job's story, and you might be ready for that. But there are two things still missing. The foundation for faith like Job's and the so what of this story in our lives. The foundation for faith can only be the grace of God. In the middle of all his troubles, This is where Job placed his trust. He knew that his Redeemer lives and that because of what God has promised sinners, he would have eternal life in heaven. And what Job knew only as as promises the Lord would surely keep, we know as promises the Lord has surely kept. God sent his Son as promised. Jesus, the Christ, sent Him to live perfectly in our place and to suffer and die in our place, gave Him as a sacrifice to redeem us from our bondage to sin and death so that we might have forgiveness for all our sins, eternal life, and salvation. Christ and His cross and empty tomb 
are everything we need. Just as Paul told us in our second lesson today, Christ died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died in their place and was raised again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This, this is how God deals with sinners, with grace, forgiveness, and power to restore us in Christ to the relationship that he designed us for from the beginning. And with this certain salvation from a loving Lord, with grace as the foundation for our faith, we know we can trust Him for all things and we can live confidently and courageously as He calls us to live as His children. But what does that mean? Or to put it perhaps a little more crassly, so what? What difference does this good news of Jesus Christ or this story of Job make when I have doubts, when I encounter challenges, when I have troubles? God's message to Job and his friends is still know that I am God. That is still his message to you today. God is still God. Despite Satan's efforts to mess with this world, to make problems, to cause troubles, to give everyone the impression that God is not in control or that he doesn't even exist. God is still God when he doesn't seem to have done anything of significance recently. Yeah, sure, there were the miracles way back then. Oh yeah, and that Jesus on the cross thing, that was, that was something, but that was 2,000 years ago. God is still God. God is still God when He doesn't seem to have done anything recently for you either. Yeah, yeah, there was. He's done some things. He helped. Yeah, this was nice. I felt good about it then, but lately, eh. God is still God. God is still God, even though people that you respect or want to like you deny Him mock Him, criticize, or otherwise reject Him. God is still God. Even when He doesn't fit your ideas of what He should be, or your demands of what He should do, God is still God. Even though society seems to have come up with, with so many better alternatives to God. Science. Justice some other God, self-reliance, whatever it might be, God is still God. Especially when you or other people start to think that you know better, that you can give Him advice, that you would run the world better if you were God, and so on. Don't make the mistake of ignorance or unbelief or weak faith like, like the disciples did there in the boat with Jesus in the storm. Don't forget who He is and what He does. But this is more, it's about much more than mere knowledge. 
It is even more about trust. Job learned in a vivid and unforgettable way that that even through the worst of times, the Lord can be counted on to do what is right and to do what is right for His children. And so His message is also one to calm our hearts and minds and give comfort to our souls. Be still. Know that I am God. So trust God still. Trust Him still, even when Satan plays games with your heart and mind and soul trying to shake your faith in Jesus. Trust God still when suffering comes. Whatever its cause, whatever its nature, however long it lasts, God is still there. He still loves. He will still bring you through. So trust God still when life seems unfair or unjust. Trust God still when your your family and friends like Job's have deserted you or failed you or accused you unfairly or, or even come and give you unhelpful advice. Trust God still when you are disappointed by God. When He just does not do for you the things that you wanted or expected Him to do for you. Trust God still when you run out of patience or when you are simply the end of your rope. Trust God still even when God doesn't give you the answers that you're looking for and doesn't tell you why. And don't trust God from an expectation of a, some kind of quid pro quo, which was what Satan suggested was, was Job's motivation. No, you trust God because God is good and He is good to you. Trust God, because even the wind and the waves obey Him. Because the love of Christ compels us. Because He can always be counted on to take care of us, to turn even the greatest evil to our benefit, and to take us home to heaven at the end of all our suffering. He will answer our prayers. He will hear our complaints and confessions. He will guide us with His Word and give us all the answers that we actually need. He will comfort and counsel us with His Spirit. and He will strengthen us with His sacraments. The Lord will always come through with love, wisdom, and power. That's what kind of God we have. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, still. Amen. Please rise. May the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.